This is the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman. Brought to you by the Academy of Dental CPAs. Whether it's taxes, investing, or planning wisely, Art is your guide to make your dental practice as profitable as possible. Here's your host, Dental CPA, Art Wiederman. And hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman CPA. That's me, Art Wiederman. I'm a dental-specific CPA located in Southern California, and I'm a proud member of the Academy of Dental CPAs, which is 24 CPA firms that represent over 9,000 dentists all over the country. And as I've told you through our journey, that was, we are approaching a year. I cannot believe it's been a year. We started this journey in December of 2018, and we're getting uh, close to the holidays, folks, uh, as we record this show in uh, early October, actually middle of October. As we get uh, as we get closer to the holidays, we're going to be approaching a year on this. And as I've told you, you're going to meet some of my friends. And not only today are you going to meet one of my friends, you're going to meet someone who I consider uh, a family member, uh, someone who uh, I have become very close with over the last 15, 20, 20 years. He is actually my business partner in our dental brokerage, but he is a lot more than that. And uh, today, we're going to spend the hour with uh, Dr. Phil Potter. Dr. Potter was a practicing dentist in uh, San Clemente, California, which is right at the the bottom of Orange County, geographically, not the bottom in any other way. Uh, San Clemente is the last town you hit in uh, driving down to San Diego, and then you hit uh, Camp Pendleton and Oceanside. So Dr. Potter practiced there for 31 years, and Phil has, uh, not o- was not only an exquisite cosmetic, restorative, uh, operative dentist uh, in his practice. But Phil also was a coach uh, for many, many years, coaching on um, leadership, complex care. And we're going to talk about this episode. Uh, We're actually going to call this episode Pearls from One of the Best Dentists and Coaches I Know, because that's what you're going to get today. And we're going to talk about some different things that you should recognize in your practice and things you should be doing and Maybe some things that you shouldn't be doing. So before I get to Dr. Potter and I introduce him, I do want to give you some information. Uh, first, I want to let you know if you want to get a hold of me at my office in Tustin, California, in Orange County, you can call me at 714-259-0505. If you want to look at our company website, uh, my CPA firm, of which I am a partner in the dental division, is called HMWC. So you can go to our website, which is www.hmwccpa.com, go to the resources link, and then click on podcasts, and you'll be able to see all the podcasts that we've done. Uh, We're approaching 50 that we have done. And then if you are looking for a dental-specific CPA anywhere in the United States of America, and boy, our podcast is growing. I'm so thankful to everybody out there that's listening and telling their friends Uh, We just got a couple of calls from folks on the East Coast that heard the podcast and had some questions, and thank you so much for that. But if you're looking for a dental-specific CPA, uh, if you're looking in Southern California, north of San Diego, we have a wonderful firm in San Diego. Uh, Drew Hendricks' firm is in San Diego, but my firm covers uh, Los Angeles, Orange, Riverside, San Bernardino County, pretty much up to the Fresno area is, is our territory with the Academy of Dental CPAs. If you're looking anywhere else in the United States, well, if you're looking there, call me. If you're looking anywhere else in the United States, 
go to our website, which is www.adcpa.org, not .com, .org, and look for the member in your area, and you will not be sorry. So we're going to get to our topic today, and this is really fun for me because Dr. Phil Potter, our relationship started out about 25 or 30 years ago. Uh, He was actually one of my clients. I was his CPA, and we had a CPA client relationship, and uh, my one of my many jokes I talk about Phil is that uh, Phil has a a wonderful, amazing wife named Lorraine, and and Lorraine is one of the two or three people who was actually handling the uh, the books for one of my practices that I would actually offer a job to. I mean, she was that meticulous and 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 that good. And um, then I decided uh, as as my my clientele, my my clients were getting older. I mean, I started back in the eighties. And I had clients that I started with when they were in their you know, late 20s, early 30s. And I was approaching, you know, the point where these doctors were starting to get ready to retire. And they were starting to ask me, say, Art, so I, I'd really love you to help me with the transition of my practice. And I go, well, you know, you really have to be a licensed broker in California. And after about the fourth or fifth person that said that, I said, yeah, maybe I should go out and do this and started talking to some folks and and I did it for my did it myself for a year, and then figured out that I couldn't really do both jobs by myself, and and uh, have my head not explode. So then I I came up with the idea that I really needed a a dentist, uh, you know, because we were going to be you know I was the CPA and we needed a dentist, and quite frankly, Phil was pretty much the only choice that I had, and uh, the not I let me say that differently, Phil was the only one that would have really really been successful, and he's been beyond successful in our in her career. And um, Phil is the closest thing to a dad that I have, to be real honest with you. My my biological dad died when I was 16. My stepdad, who was very influential in my life, passed away in uh, on Christmas Eve of 1985 or 86. I think it was 86. So I, I've really not had a father figure in my life for the better part of 30, 30 some odd years. And Phil has been wonderful and a mentor and a a friend and and uh, someone that I use as a resource, and um, so so this is very special to have the opportunity to talk to him about not only his expertise of having been an amazing cosmetic and restorative dentist for thirty one years, but some of the the coaching he did. So um, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Dr. Potter. Dr. Potter did his uh, undergrad work at the University of Southern California. See, if I say USC, you're all going to think South Carolina. Uh, or Southern Connecticut. No, no, this is USC, the University of Southern California. Uh, he uh, he got his dental DDS degree at uh, also University of Southern California in 1973. And he practiced in San Clemente, which is, um, you, you might know of San Clemente because that's where the old Nixon uh, White House, uh, Summer White House or Winter White House, I don't remember which one it was, that was in San Clemente. And, and so that's where Phil practiced. Phil taught clinically for many, many years at uh, both USC and UCLA. And uh, you might have actually seen Phil lecture because Phil um, lectured for over 10 years uh, with Dr. Paul Homily. And and Dr. Homily will be on our show at some point in the future once I can pin him down for a time. And um, they they talked about uh, all the different things regarding case presentation, leadership, and uh, what makes you successful in a practice. And, and, And Phil and Dr. Homily did... Uh, courses um, for dentists all over the country for many many years, and Phil has been uh, Phil has been my partner for uh, in, in the practice sales business since 2005, and uh, so I guess that's 14 years. 
So again, I, I, I am very excited to have Dr. Potter on our, on our show today. So Dr. Phil Potter, welcome to the Art of Dental Finance. Thank you, Art. It was quite an introduction. Um, I want to thank you for the honor of, of uh, sitting in, talking to your podcast listeners. The um, array of management financial uh, guests that you've had on this show has been uh, impressive. And I'm just really honored and humbled to be considered uh, anywhere close to that level. So thanks for that. And um, I just wanted to let everybody know out there in, in listening land that, that it's really a pleasure to see Art become a human being again after October 15th. Those of you who don't know what it's like to work in a dental CPA firm, uh, the, the tax extension season in the fall can, can be pretty bleak. Art's just now starting to get his color back. <laughs> start, starting to look like a human being again, and I uh, can actually have conversations with him of more than three words intelligibly. So, uh, well, well, why is that any different than any other time? <laughs> well, the the tax seasons take its toll on you, Art. And um, anyway, let's uh, let's move away from that. And I have had the honor and privilege of um, working with a lot of great dentists. Uh, I had to quit my practice 15 years ago because of some orthopedic problems. And I thought that I was going to retire. I was blessed because my lovely wife, Lorraine, that Art already mentioned, uh, uh, was very frugal. And we were actually able to retire 15 years ago. And, and Art had asked me to do this work with him. And I said, no, I'm just going to hike in the mountains and, and enjoy my retirement. Well, if you ask my wife, she says that probably lasted about three months. And then she started, <laughs> she started saying things to me like, what do you hear from Art? Because she knew that Art had asked me to do this work with him. And, you know, how's, how's Art doing? Kind of gently nudging me. Uh, she actually shared with me. This is cliche, I know, but she actually shared with me later on that, that she had married me for better or worse, but not for lunch. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I know, I know that because she's told me the same thing. And, and um, uh, as many of us males understand, the, the, um, uh, our spouses do rule the roost, and, and Lorraine is a, a wonderful, wonderful, amazing, amazing lady. And she also worked in dentistry for many, many years. And so I, I, I was just blessed. I mean, I, I've seen partnerships. My last podcast I recorded was on partnerships. I've seen some bad ones. I've been so fortunate to have Phil as a friend, a mentor. I mean, um, he, he's taught me a couple of really interesting things. Uh, one of the first things, he, he taught me this term that I use every day in my life almost. And he says, Arthur, the truth will set you free. And, and that just makes so much sense. And if you live your life that way, it makes difficult decisions and difficult situations a lot easier. But Dr. Potter does have a character flaw, as hard as this is to believe. <laughs> Dr. Potter needs a 12-step program in fly fishing. So that is his hobby. And he had been dying to get me into fly fishing. Now, Understand that if, if I had gone to dental school, I have the manual dexterity of an elephant. So if I were to be a dentist, it would have been an ugly, ugly day in dentist, in dentist land. So uh, in order to be successful in fly fishing, you have to be able to tie knots. And I'm still fighting him about that. But the, the, the best story I tell is the first day he bought me my first fly rod. Now, I didn't know the difference between a fly rod or a fly pole or a, or a flagpole or whatever the heck it was, right? So we're standing outside, just about ready to go on our first trip he was going to take me on. And I said, so where's my fishing pole? Well, if you think, you think I was turning colors during taxis, and you should have seen him turn colors. He's looking at me and he grabs me, he literally grabbed me by the shirt. And he says, Arthur, 
if there's one thing you have to learn if we're going to do this together, it's not a fishing pole. It's a fly rod. I never forgot that. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. I also remember uh, Art trying to learn how to release a fish in a fishing boat in a nice mountain lake. And I was trying to tell him how to do it very gently and, and release the fish so it's not injured and hurt. And this dexterity issue that Art was talking about was very difficult for him with the fish flopping around. And so the fish <laughs> slammed into the bottom of the boat. And I said, no, 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 no. You pick him up gently. And he did it again and slammed the fish down to the bottom of the boat again. And I don't know, some of you may be boxing fans and have heard of the Marcus of Queensbury rules. So we, we just sort of already says, you can't, you can't perform the Marcus of Weederbury rules on these fish, Mark. <laughs> All right, you've got, you've got to take it gentle. So we, we love to have a good time together. We're, we're somewhat crazy when it comes to that. So I, I felt so bad. The poor fish. I couldn't hold the fish. It's too slippery. You didn't tell me the damn fish were slippery, Phil. Come on. So, all right. Well, we could talk about fly fishing and USC football and, and all kinds of things for hours, but that's not what we're here to talk about. So, one of the things I want to get this discussion started, Phil, is, is you and I have talked a lot about dentists differentiating their practices. Talk a little bit about how they need to do that. Well, I can't really tell people how the, what they need to do so much as I like to point out to some of, and let me back up for a second. You know, I've had a wonderful career. Dentistry is, I think, the best career on the planet. I practiced um, what I think was a high level for a number of years, was unable to continue because of some health issues. But then God smiled on me, and I was able to do some consulting and then ultimately work with art in the practice transitions industry where I see a lot of offices, a lot of really successful practices, some not so successful. And one of the things that I see as a common theme for many of our colleagues, and I love all of them, is differentiating their practice. Um, how, how do they differentiate? And do they even recognize that differentiating their practice is important? One of the things that I see happening in dentistry is what I call the commoditization. I think it's even been called the McDonaldization of dentistry. And so... Oftentimes, our our clients and friends and colleagues will say to me, geez, you know, I practice at this high level. I've really learned great clinical skills, but I, I'm hamstrung because I'm told by the insurance companies that I have to charge this much money, and I can't use the lab I want to use, and I can't do this, and I can't do that. And I want to tell them that they can differentiate because of what I call the windows of the marketplace. And this is something that Many dentists don't recognize and don't understand. It's a really terrific book by some guys named Tracy and Wyserna called The Differentiation of the Marketplace. And they talk about the windows of the marketplace. And basically, in simple lay terms, it's that Nordstrom doesn't see themselves competing with Walmart. And my colleagues that are spending so much time and effort and energy and concern over practicing at a high level really can't afford to practice like that and compete with Western Dental or some of the the, the really big, you know, sort of uh, lower socioeconomic class uh, providers. They have a very difficult time breaking away from that because all the market forces, the government, the, the insurance companies, they're, you know, really 
uh, moving the profession in that direction in what I call the commoditization of the industry. But the differentiation, the understanding what it takes to break away from that, I think is really important. And one of the things that I help them with when, when we talk about that is what I call the success triangle. Yeah, that was that was something that we talked about in our in our pre-show interview. So so talk a little bit. I know that there's it's like the three-legged stool. We have that in accounting also, um, where the consulting part is the is the three-legged the, the, the shorter stool. But um, uh, talk about the success triangle for a minute. All right. Well, I can talk about it best by just describing my personal journey through dentistry. When I got out of school, you know, I was I, I was very um, good in dental school. I graduated, you know, in the upper part of my class. <laughs> Excuse me. And, you know, I really thought that, okay, I'm going to be successful in this profession if I just get really good at doing the clinical skills of, of my profession and adding skills and, you know, being uh, the kind of dentist, dentist that I w- would like to have practice on myself. And I thought the, the, the road to success in dentistry uh, was lined with my clinical skills. And certainly they were very important and are very important. But as I went down the road in my practice, you know, I was practicing at a very high level, but it wasn't progressing at the rate that I wanted. And I had consultants and people in the industry and uh, telling me that, well, you just you, you need to present a really fine dental office. You know, you've got to have a really showcase place to do this. So I developed that. I had a really nice developed a really nice office. Had really. Uh, efficient, well-trained team members. They were dressed nicely. And uh, I had what I call the second leg of the success triangle. The physical structure and tangible assets of my practice were very compelling. But even at that, I couldn't break away from the low-fee model, get it, get a fee higher than the, the recent graduate that moved in next door uh, that didn't have the clinical skills that I had. And I ended up learning that the third leg of the triangle was really necessary to, to move me to the success in dentistry that I wanted. And as success, you know, defined as however you want to define it. For me, I, I wanted to be able to work a reasonable number of hours, get paid commensurate with my skill sets, and be able to provide for my family. You know, I think those are prob- probably pretty close to, to what most of us in dentistry would define as as our success uh, goals. Anyway, that third leg of the triangle was the communication and leadership skills uh, in both the cognitive and the emotive world. In other words, um, uh, how to talk to people, why to talk certain ways to them, how to differentiate to talk some people some way and some people another way. And what I see is a lot of triangles that are not equilateral, really strong base of the triangle as clinical skills that are off the scale, really nice, compelling office, but the communication leadership skills sometimes lagging behind. And of course, many of of us, those are the areas that we're least comfortable. You know, we like to perform our skills and make widgets and, you know, do bridges and crowns and place implants and do surgery. But the emotive world evades us. Um, And so that third leg of the triangle, in order to really break away from the commoditization of the industry, think about really strengthening that leg of the triangle. 
And and so that's a good point, Phil. And we've talked about leadership and communication skills. And 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 like I've told all of you out there, is you know, Dr. Phil Potter and his wife Lorraine did not come to me because uh, they know that I know that line 15 is where you put the IRA distribution. That's not why they came to me. They came to me because someone told them, someone who maybe was not having a good day. No, I'm just kidding. Someone who told them that, um, you know, Art Wiederman communicates well and Art Wiederman uh, can help you get to your goals. Same with a dentist because, it, it, you know, again, you all presume that Dr. Potter, Dr. Wiederman, Dr. whomever is going to have the necessary skills because they're calling themselves a dentist. But it's it's not those skills that are going to make the success. So, so, so the leadership part of it, which I see lacking, I mean, I see lots of offices, Phil, where the, the team is telling me that the team is leading the doctor. The team is setting the goals and setting the path. And the doctor just doesn't want to be involved. I mean, that, that's part of this too, right? Well, it certainly is many times. But the other side of this coin is that, you know, we have dentists, really remarkably bright, capable and skilled people that have taken up an inordinate amount of their life learning these clinical skills and getting through dental school and getting boarded. And they many times not only don't have the skills to do proper leadership, but they don't even know what those skills are. Oftentimes, they believe that they're leaders and that they have great leadership skills. They're leading in the sense that they're a head of a business or the head of their church or uh, dental society or so forth. But that's positional leadership. What I'm talking more about is actually developing influence with human beings. And this is where I see such great gains can be made by dentists recognizing that and then creating a continuing education schedule where they actively and and deliberately set aside their time in the emotive and the communication world rather than all of their communicate all of their CE time in clinical skills that, that that's right so so look, when you would go in and you would see a dentist who had some weaknesses in leadership Give us a couple of gems, a couple of steps that, that that you would help them. I mean, was it a book? Maybe it was a CD. Um, was it just some coaching? How would you start with a dentist and who didn't really have the leadership skills to kind of get them those skills? Well, first of all, for most dentists, if you describe to them that th- they need improvement in their leadership skills, uh, they won't listen. They, they don't. They see themselves as leaders already. So I would often, and, and when I was working with Paul Homley, we would present case acceptance for complex care um, because a lot of dentists w- would like to do more complex dentistry and they'd like to have more patients accept their complex care. And success in uh, acquiring a practice where patients are accepting more complex care is almost entirely a function of the leadership of that practice and the leadership of the owner. And we can discuss, you know, the differentiation between simple care and more complex care and, and how the communications in an office uh, of necessity needs to vary if that office aspires to do more complex care. So, so let's talk about doctor comes in, the leadership is maybe lacking, which affects the ability to get the complex care to be accepted by the patient. So what does the doctor need to do in talking to his or her team 
to build that leadership um, relationship so that the team is really looking to that doctor and says, this, this doctor has a plan. That's a very complex question. I, I would recommend that dentists who are interested in getting their toes wet or continuing their quest for leadership skills look seriously at uh, the work in emotional intelligence, in particularly a book called Primal Leadership. Um, Primal Leadership describes six styles of leadership that are important. Two of them are um, called pace setting and commanding styles. And they're important styles of leadership, but they're, they wear on people very quickly. And most dentists, when they get out of school, rely on pace setting and commanding leadership styles. But they also have a hard time keeping employees in their office. The additional styles that are very much more compelling to team members and to people in, in their lives are um, styles like coaching style, affiliative, gaining influence by being likable. Um, different. Th- there are six different styles that are described in this book. I won't be going into all of them in, 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 in this context. But for team leadership or leadership really, gaining influence on human beings if I had to direct someone to one book, that would be it, Art. The, the book is called Primal Leadership. And I've read that book, and it's an excellent book. And, and one of the other things, doctors, if, if you want to really get in this leadership, there are complexities to it. But a lot of times, leadership is just basically getting up there and telling the team, listen, um, I don't have every answer. Uh, I have a vision. This is where I want to go. And I'm going to employ all of you to help me get there with my vision. Now, obviously, as Phil is talking about, it's a lot more complex. But um, one of the things, if you ever get an opportunity, and let's chat about this for a second. Uh, you and I have a very close friend who is not only a uh, an amazing dentist and speaker, but also a pretty darn good fly fisherman, which is all that really matters in this conversation, is Dr. Bob Frazier, who's out of, um, uh, he's, he's kind of out of Austin, Texas and Durango, Colorado, but uh, I brought Dr. Frazier out, oh gosh, 15 years ago. And we put 50 people in the audience. And uh, at the end, uh, he and uh, Dr. Bob Woodburn, who's a clinical psychologist, did two days on emotional intelligence. It was scintillating, phenomenal work. So talk a little bit about, maybe a little about what Bob does. You mean what he does, fly fishing? <laughs> yeah, well, we can do that too. <laughs> yeah, well, he outfly-fished both of us. Yeah, we were just fly-fishing together in Montana. That's right. Bob and I. Bob teaches great courses on emotional intelligence, um, and I, I certainly commend anyone who's interested in getting their toe wet in that arena t- to contact uh, Bob. And um, But the world of emotional intelligence, of leadership in general, I, I call it a magic book, because as you turn the pages of this book of learning how to influence human beings, um, the, the book gains additional pages. So it, it expands as you get more into it, and, and it's really fabulous. And it's the, like I say, it's the key to the third leg of the, of the success triangle. <clears throat> and and, and that, that's great advice. So are, are there a couple of things of a dentist, maybe they're not a reader, they should be a reader, but a couple of things they can do to just start down the road with some of the things that you and Paul Homily teach. I mean, is it 
talking to their team, Phil? Is it their um, uh, just uh, th- their attitude needs to change? But how does someone get started if they haven't done this before? Well, of course, the team attitude is it's all over the map. And uh, sometimes the team is wishing that they had more leadership. Uh, sometimes the team, you know, is a team that can't be led. So it, it's a matter of, of diagnosing, just like everything we do in dentistry and everything you do with people's books. And you diagnose what the problem is before you can uh, recommend a solution. But th- the first thing is to recognize that the, this success triangle has three legs and that oftentimes one of the third leg, the, the leg that I see the short leg many times, the leg of communication and leadership skills is often the one that's actually holding back from the stated goals of the, of the practitioner. And so that's the first step is recognition and then seeking out help, whether it's from a Bob Frazier or Paul Homley, some, some other great consultant in the country um, that, that knows about these issues. So one of the things you and I have talked about, uh, and you actually taught me this, and I use this when I coach my clients, is that the patient is ready when the patient is ready. Not when you, doctor, think the patient is ready. You look at that and you say, oh, that patient really needs to do that quadrant of crowns. And that patient has other things going on in their life. Um, I remember when I actually, I flew to Dallas um, and I watched Phil and Paul present and he uh, and, and I watched them talk about um, a, a hypothetical patient named Michelle, who was an art dealer. Uh, she was actually had an art gallery and all this stuff. And that's very near to dear to my heart, because as I've told you many times on this podcast, my my wonderful wife of 34 years, Lynn, is one of the most uh, exquisite plein air painters on the planet. So I've I've lived in the art world for uh, uh, not only art me, but the art world for, uh, you know, 30, 36 years and. So Paul and, and Phil were talking about Michelle and how, um, you know, uh, Michelle was uh, coming into the dentist's office and Michelle was making a, um, you know, she she really wanted to be really looking good for that art opening for her art gallery, the new art gallery in three months. And and, and Paul and Phil talked about the, they say, well, you know what, uh, Michelle, there's, we're going to get you looking really good for this art opening. Now, you have other issues in your mouth, but- we're going to get you really looking good. And, and it, it, it's about helping that patient through that journey, Phil, of, 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 you know, like they're ready when they're ready. And you and I have talked about that a lot. Maybe get into a little bit about, uh, about that. Well, first of all, what I see a lot is um, dentists confusing their communication uh, <clears throat> for complex care, for more advanced types of dentistry with the way that they've been taught to, 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 to communicate with patients regarding simple care. So the first differentiation is whether the patient actually uh, has a need for simple care or for more complex care, and then stylizing the communication around what that need is. And, and I'm talking about just um, recognizing that a patient that has more complex care needs can quit listening to us really quickly if we're trying to use the same uh, approach to their uh, education of their th- their dental disease um, that we use when they have uh, very little care. In other words, as the complexity of care increases, the style of leadership and the conversation, the language that we choose to use with patients um, sh- should, to be most effective with that person, change. It should go from 
a, a simple language and education model to more of an understanding model, more of a support model um, for that patient, uh, recognizing that most dental disease is not urgent and that we influence people over a period of time by gaining their trust and uh, not indicating to them that we're in a big hurry. Obviously, if they have some life-threatening or you know very urgent disease process, we're going to talk about that, but and use as simple and assertive as language as possible for that, but not for the whole complex care. In other words, as the care gets more complex, the language changes, and we go from a retail sales type of a model of educating people what's going on in their mouth why it's dangerous for them, what we can do for them, and and how they'll benefit by it, to a more supportive model of asking them questions, talking less ourselves, listening to them, listening to what they're motivated to do, what they're ready for, and supporting them in in a in a phenomena we call advocacy, where we become we're becoming their advocate, where they feel like they're supported, whether they're ready to begin or not, and if they feel that way, then many times they're going to get their dentistry done in that place, maybe not at that moment. So we support them, we put them in with a good hygienist, we take care of more immediate care needs, and we support them in the practice until until they're ready. So it's it's a function of diagnosis, just like everything else we do, but it's a diagnosis in the in the emotive world. Where are they emotionally and where are they in terms of readiness? Sometimes they can't, they, they would like to do things, but they can't do them right now. They've got the mom in the, in the uh, assisted care home and and uh, the car's breaking down and, and they just can't uh, see fit to do complex care dentistry right at that moment. That, that, that's right. And it's, um, it, it's, again, you and I have talked about this and I've talked with other consultants uh, about this and that it is all about helping the patient with their total health helping them understand what the issues are. And like you've told, taught me is, and, and what Paul and you taught is, when does this dentistry fit into this person's life? If it's, like you say, if it's urgent, you're certainly going to, as a healthcare practitioner, you're going to let them know it's urgent. And if if you don't take this action that we're su- suggesting, here's what could happen. And that's all you can do. You can't take them and shake them and slam their head up against the wall and say, you have to do this. I guess if you slam their head up against the wall, they need more dentistry, right, Phil? <laughs> is that how it works? That's how we get more. If we have in a low month, no, no, that's not what we do. But it, it's 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 getting that patient to the point where they understand, they understand the challenge, they understand the risks, uh, they understand of not doing it. But again, it's understanding. That's why Paul talks about in his course, with a new t- patient sitting down for an hour and just listening, where are they in their lives, right? Isn't that what you guys used to teach? Well, the time, that, the time that it takes to do that can vary. Sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's not. But it's really not a function of time so much as it's a function of listening skills to listen what the patient is actually telling us and, and being okay with their agenda, not trying to hoist our agenda onto them. And that's the big difference because most of us want to educate them into what we call compliance behavior. Educate them, let them know that that this is all the things that's going to happen and you better do this. But it's confusing and it does not build a relationship and it's it's not leadership. It's not, it is not a compelling model to do that. So 
there's, um, you know, there's nuances to this. The key for this level of introduction, I think, is to know that there are different ways to communicate based on the complexity of care. And one of the keys is if the patient has more complex care, the more listening the practitioner should be doing rather than talking. That's a pretty, a pretty safe bet that more listening, less talking. If there's very simple care, then it's very simple. It's what you learn how to do in dental school is describe it and, uh, you know, get it done. But, um, a lot of this has to do with, with not only their, their, uh, emotional readiness, but also, you know, um, their pocketbook. And, um, you know, some people would really love to do move ahead. They're ready to move ahead, but they can't afford it right then. So are, are you a healthcare provider that can support them through that until they're ready? If you are, you're going to be highly compelling to them. If you say, look, it's my way or the highway, then, you know, don't be surprised when they go out the back door. So I was talking to one of my clients the other day here in Southern California, and um, I was talking to him about the fact that his uh, accounts receivables were rather high. And uh, he says, well, you know, Art, I'm kind of guilty. I'm kind of the one that did this. I said, really, doc, tell me what's going on. He says, he says, well, you know, I I listen to these patients and they and they give me every sob story in the book. Every said Phil is smiling. Every sob story in the book. By the way, we are here in our uh, in our broadcast headquarters doing this live, which is always fun for me. Um, and 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 I I just I just I just can't say no to these people. I just so I I cut them deals left and right, and I just want to take my take this doctor's head and and, and just I want to just put it in a toilet or something. I just really get mad. I said, maybe upset or frustrated. And some say, you know, what you really need to be saying is, is you know, Mrs. Smith, I, I understand. And, and Susie at the front, again, I always use Susie. Sorry to all you Susies, but I use Susie. Susie at the front desk is a master of working with all of the different financial aspects of, of, of this treatment uh, to, to make it work for you. And, and again, it can be staged. And like Dr. Potter was saying is, is that, um, if you stage the treatment and you give the patient the option said, okay, instead of saying, all right, this is a $40,000 case and we're going to do it now, uh, or, or you can't be a patient. And we don't want to do that, obviously. So, so Phil, one of the other things we talked about uh, that we want to discuss today is the marketing pyramid. Um, let's talk a little bit about effective marketing and how the marketing pyramid and what, you, what your uh, teachings have been uh, works with dentistry. Well, it's a great question, Art, uh, and I don't uh, try to set myself up as an advertising, you know, marketing guru. There's plenty of people that have terrific expertise, and I think you've talked to some of them on your podcast and so forth. But one of the things that I see is that the dentists are in need of new patients. You know, it's most uh, many parts of the country that that that's a true statement, and so they. Um, Go ahead, and they'll sign up for an advertising program, and they spend a lot of money. Um, and you know, maybe they get some response, maybe they don't get such good response. But oftentimes, when I'm looking at it, they didn't have the basics of what I call the marketing pyramid in place. Because when somebody comes in on uh, on the motivation from an ad, the practice should be what I call immediately and overwhelmingly obvious that this is a different place and a, and, a, and a correct place, a right place, a, a caring place to be. 
that it's so well managed and so run and the communication skills are at such a high level. In other words, that success triangle is such a strong equilateral triangle that patients that maybe just clipping a coupon, for instance, would get a sense, like I say, very quickly that, no, this is different than the other places I've been. I'm very comfortable here. Maybe I will stay here as a long-term patient. And so what does that look like? I call it the marketing pyramid. And the base of the pyramid is the strength of the success triangle. How strong are the clinical skills? How well is the, how good is the reputation of the doctor in the, in the community? What are the basics of the underlying skill sets in the office? How compelling is the office itself? It doesn't have to be a Taj Mahal. But certainly clean and uncluttered and and pleasant smelling and and visually uh, pleasing, you know it doesn't have to be all granite, for instance. But certainly we see very nice offices with practitioners that are leading strongly, that have um, you know I would say modest offices in terms of cost, but but you feel very comfortable there. You have a sense when you walk in the door that this is a really special place. The climate or the feeling in the office is very good. We could talk a lot about cl- uh, about the climate of a dental office. We can talk about that in a minute here if you like. And and that the base of the tr- of the marketing pyramid is in place. Then, it, it, and as part of the success triangle, one of the tangible arms of the triangle is the in-office marketing efforts that. Um, that that office is doing the little uh, birthday recognitions, uh, little patient contests. I mean, that uh, a, a little uh, patient newsletter, doing extra special things, d- delivering uh, mom home after a rigorous uh, uh, procedure. You know, I mean, just the little things that that do to, to set people aside to create a great climate in the office. Then the so that's the base of, of the marketing pyramid, this, this overwhelmingly good place to be. The second tier, as you go up the marketing pyramid, the middle of the pyramid, if, if you will, is what I call personal external marketing. And that's the presence of the office, the presence of the owner doctor in the community. Um, you know, I like to see uh, doctors actually living in the community where they practice. Sometimes that's not feasible in today's uh, metropolitan world, but certainly it's more compelling to have a relationship in the community that is outside the office, but still a professional one where people recognize that this is a, maybe, maybe it's the boys and girls club board. Uh, you know, maybe it's giving lectures on fly fishing at the Kiwanis club. I'll be giving my, my, my lectures at, uh, at your dental society shortly, just, you know, Phil. <laughs> Yeah, good luck with that. Anyway, so so that, I mean, in today's world, it's still very important that people feel a connection with their healthcare professional. I mean, it's something that's being lost, but you talk about differentiating from the commoditization of dentistry, this middle level of of this pyramid is where much of that differentiation can and will occur, and it's very inexpensive to do so. The third level is the actual advertising effort. And frankly, and, I, and you and I have talked about this before, Art, it, it used to be when I grew up, excuse me, in dentistry, uh, if you were an ethical practitioner, you know, the, to go out and advertise in dentistry was taboo. 
I mean, it was really looked down on. Even after it became, quote-unquote, legal in the dental society and, and in, in the state board to, to, to overtly advertise, it was very much looked down upon and, and scorned by our colleagues. I've gone full circle on this. Today, in this environment, the doctors that are out there trying to provide great care for their patients and working hard to do it with their continuing education, they're away from their families, they're spending money to get to the next level of caring for human beings, and they're struggling to, to break this dif- to, to make this differentiation. I think they they're doing the public and their patients a disservice if they're not advertising what they have available. And so um, I think that uh, a well constructed um, advertising program is important for high levels of differentiation, but it has to be done with someone who understands the differentiation. What kinds of advertising will work in a differentiated model? And again, I'm not an advertising guru, but there are people out there, and I'm sure, Bart, you can introduce people to them that know what I'm talking about. And, and it's not, you know, the, the coupon clipping type of thing necessarily. I'm not necessarily against that, but it's a whole different genre of advertising at a high level. You might see it, for instance, in the ads for plastic, plastic surgeon, for instance, someone who is a discriminating expense healthcare provider, right? Right. And, and, and those sorts of things. So the top of the, pyra- of the pyramid is this advertising so that when people are compelled to accept their offer to come in the office, they walk in and the base of this pyramid and the middle of this pyramid all supports what that message is. That's the marketing pyramid. And, and, and I love that. And, and so let me take this a step further because we're getting towards the end of our time, but we still got some time. I really want to cover this. Is, so we do all this. We set up this marketing period. We have a, a, this pyramid. We, we have a, a world-class team who understands the doctor's vision and philosophy. Everything is looking good, but we have this one weak link at the front desk. He's smiling again. And the patient comes in and, you, you know, what's the Johnson & Johnson commercial? You never get a second chance to make a first impression, right? So they, they don't get a good first impression. And then they walk out and they don't know when their next appointment is. And they don't know what's going on. And they go, these people are messed up. They, they, they leave. And, and this is why another thing I'm going to go off a little bit of a tangent here myself is, you know, you could get. 40 new patients a month. And most single practitioners can't handle 40 new patients a month. That's way too many. The average that my consultant friends over 35 years have taught me is somewhere between, you know, 10 to 15 to maybe 18 new patients a month in a single practice. If you're, if you're running now, if you're running an HMO office or a, a PPO, I mean, that, that's a different conversation. I'm talking about a fee for service offices, you know, 10 to 15 to maybe 18 uh, new patients a month. Uh, make it really good. But the fact of the matter is, if you get 10 or 15 new patients and 20 patients a month are walking out the door because they're not being contacted and they're not being scheduled, and that's why you need to look at your metrics and find out why is it that only 50% of the patients are not being scheduled with another hygiene appointment when they walk out. So maybe, Phil, I would like to take a little bit of time and talk about your practice. Talk about your journey in dentistry, I mean, you were in it 31 years. You had one of the best practices I've ever seen. Uh, not only your team. I mean, I knew your team. I, I knew, you know, I knew Patty and Lindsay. They were just phenomenal human beings. Not only just people that worked in your office, but talk about maybe a little bit about 
how you picked your team and, and why why you were able to do what you were able to do and, and then maybe piggyback that into the coaching you did. But talk about your journey and your team and how you did some things. Well, I was very fortunate to have built a very terrific team and I, all of our success uh, really boiled down to that team and the collaboration that we had and how it was, I believe we had an environment where it was immediately and overwhelmingly obvious that it was a great place. Um, it goes to what I mentioned a little earlier, the, the climate of the office. You know, Art and I are in offices all the time. He's in offices for accounting purposes, for brokering purposes, for transi- all kinds of transitions and mergers and partnerships. And I'm there, uh, not so much consulting anymore, but but for those uh, transition uh, experiences as well. And I think Art will agree with me that we can tell in five minutes what the climate of an office is. Yep. And what I mean by climate is, is how it feels to be in that office. You know, the front, Mark mentioned the front office person that's not working out. You know, I was in an office the other day and I walked in, I had an appointment and the, the front office person, the receptionist was sitting there with her shoulder to the window typing. And I walked in and stood at the window and, and she said, oh, excuse me, I got to finish this letter and then I'll address your needs. God. <laughs> you know, and, and I could tell right away that the climate in the office, the way it felt to be in that business, was nowhere near compared to, to differentiating that practice from, uh, you know, a commoditization type of, of a practice. That's an extreme example. More to your question about my experience, Art. Um, over the years, you know, I had to learn how to lead a team. I had to learn about the... Um, the, the differentiation between various leadership styles. There's times when an, when an owner of a business needs to needs to command people. There's also times that they need to back off and and be visionary, uh, uh, be likable, um, and coach their team. You know, try try to get the best out of them. Try to explain to them and show them why we're going to do things a certain way, so that they buy in. Um, the culture of of the office is very important. The culture is different from climate. Culture is mutual beliefs and language. Okay? So people have to buy into what's going on and why, but then they have to create an environment where it feels good to be there. So it's two different things. Certainly culture is part of creating a great climate. The short answer to your question, Art, was that I was lucky enough to have put together a team of people that we were able to coach up to where we had a terrific climate in the office. And people, their insurances would change uh, but our skew of people leaving, every every office has people coming and going. Um, there's just no way around that. But what I call the skew, the the, the 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 threshold of people staying no matter what was at a very high level on our practice. It was because of those people that, that I was able to hire and train and keep in the office. And part of that built over the years. It's not easy. I had people that, that actually would call up and say, I, I wonder if you have a position available in your office. And, you know, uh, that was a tribute to, to my team and, um, and, and what we were able to accomplish. But it's, it's not easy, and I'm not trying to minimize it at all. And I hate a lot of, of um, comments these days, too, Ari, about, well, that was a different time. And, uh, you know, we have this pressure and that pressure and the government and the, and the insurance companies and this and that and the other. But I think you'll agree with me that you and I have practices today 
in our sphere of influence, uh, accounting clients and, and, and colleagues and brokering clients and so forth this, that are still able to develop that sort of environment in their office. Oh, we absolutely do. And, and, and I always use, and I've said this before on this podcast, is that the people that shop at Walmart or Target are looking for Walmart or Target. Is there anything wrong with Walmart or Target? No. It is a particular style, if you will. It is a low cost, um, get in, get yourself, uh, your stuff and get out. And cost is the issue. You want less expensive, you go to Walmart or Target. You want Nordstrom's, you go to Nordstrom's, you go to Ruth Chris, you go to Morton's, you get a BMW, Mercedes. And the fact of the matter is, is that Mercedes and BMW and Morton's are never going to discount their costs because they're providing the highest of quality uh, to people. And it really depends, doctors, because here's the deal. If, if, if dentistry was going the route of medicine, which it's not, I'm going to tell you it's not. If dentistry were going the route of medicine, then there wouldn't be any fee for service anymore. Everything would be PPO or HMO and you'd be working for 30 to 50 cents on the dollar. And there are plans that, that have you do that if you so choose. And it's a choice. And there's ways to get out of having dependency on insurance. So if you want to have a high-end fee-for-service practice, I would encourage you to do some of the things that Phil was talking about. Take your leadership courses. Become clinically amazing. Like I talk about over and over again, uh, Coice, Spear, Panky, LVI, pick your poison, but be the best that you can possibly be. And, and that's what you need to do. And I have clients who have nothing but fee-for-service. Phil and I uh, we just uh, a couple of weeks ago, we met with a doctor in Orange County, and it's just like, I don't have any PPOs. I would cut off my left arm before I would do PPOs. And he's been very successful, and it's a great practice. So these are the things that you need to look at. So we're just about running out of time, Phil. I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, it's not going to be as USC going to win the national championship this year because I know that's a painful <laughs> question for you, and I know that's not going to happen. I happen to be wearing an LSU shirt right now because I got my buddies Robbie Apple and uh, Jude and Todd Guerin in uh, Louisiana, and their team is, depending on which poll you look at, one or two right now. And I told them if they run the table, I'm getting on a plane January 8th or 9th. I'm going to the game. But, you know, your 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 team will have its time again. I, I just, just you know, take a, take a deep breath. They, they, they will. But – in the last couple of minutes, give some of your advice. Remember, we called this episode Pearls from one of the best dentists and coaches I know. Now, the one thing you don't know, folks, is that Dr. Potter has two not great, unbelievable, amazing children, one of whom, uh, her name is Karen. Karen is a highly skilled, amazing endodontist in San Clemente, California, and graduate number one in her class uh, at UCLA Dental School, if I remember correctly. And so I'm not going to say, Phil, if if you had a child and you were going to talk to them about being a dentist, well, you did that already. But if you were talking to a young dentist, maybe they're in their third or fourth year of dental school and they're getting ready to get out and, and you had an opportunity to be their mentor and say, this is some of maybe two or the three most important things that they can do in their career, what would they be? Well, it goes back to this conversation full circle, Art, to, to what we started off with, with that differentiation. Um, years ago, 
a guy named Avram King, who was a consultant in the sure. profession, would say that you, ha- you first have to get your head and your heart straight. Right? So you have to really decide what it is that you really want to have happen. If you, if you want a career in HMO dentistry and, and have uh, you know, upselling, I'm not knocking it. I say if that's what you want, then learn how to be the best there is at that model. Right. If you aspire to be uh, a, a, an academic academician and, and just practice in a, in a cloistered environment, again, nothing wrong with that. Become the best academician that you can be. If you want to practice at a high level and not be controlled by insurance companies, then learn how to do that. The book that I mentioned by Tracy and Wyserna, "The Discipline of Market Leaders." I don't think I, I, I don't think I uh, gave the right name of that earlier. It's called The Discipline of Market Leaders. I would read that. I would decide which of those windows of the marketplace that you want to be in. And then I would, it's not easy. I can tell you right now, you can decide all you want. The next step is to set your jaw and say, I will learn the skills that enable me to do that. And we see people who have learned those skills and are able to do it. And I have people tell me all the time, oh, no, you can't do that in 2019. Well, Baloney. Yeah, we, we see it all the time. So thanks, Art. Appreciate it. And thanks for the plug for my daughter, by the way. Oh. No, and um, the other uh, – no, Karen Karen is amazing, and uh, uh, she, she's just one of the finest people I know, and, and you've raised two amazing children. Uh, Philip Michael is uh, – I mean, you know, so Phil, Phil, went to, Phil went to undergrad and dental school at U, USC. Uh, Philip Michael, his son – uh, also went to USC and was in the it was in the band for four years yes. and um, I have been to football games and uh, we actually went uh, two years ago we went to uh, or was it, it was last year uh, we went to see USC play the University of Texas in Austin uh, yeah that was ugly uh, you know, Phil and I uh, with one hundred and five thousand of our closest friends all wearing um, uh, red and uh, the USC band was stuck up in the top level at the end of the end zone and you could not hear them which is very unusual for the USC band. Uh, but um, no, uh, Phil, I, I, I cannot, you will never know how much you have helped me personally, professionally, emotionally, spiritually, all the things that you do. You're one of the finest human beings I know. It's a God's honest truth. We joke a lot. Uh, you and I have had a lot of adventures together, been to a lot of places together. We've helped a lot of doctors transition their practices uh, but, uh, you know, if, if you're looking for a partner and you are lucky to find someone with, with half of what Dr. Potter has, you, you'll be, you'll be unbelievably blessed. So Phil, thanks for everything that you've done. And thanks for the great information today. Uh, I've got some information for you folks as we leave the program today. Um, if you want to get a hold of me again at my office in Tustin, California, I'm at 714-259-0505. Uh, our website for our CPA firm is www.hmwccpa.com. If you want to look at all the past podcasts that we've recorded, and we're like I say, we're approaching 50, we're going to have a a one-year anniversary here shortly. I'm very excited about that. And as, like, as I mentioned uh, in the past couple of episodes, I do have some, we'll have some very exciting news about the podcast coming up in the next uh, month or two once we get it all squared away. Really, really good stuff. Um, go to our website again, www.hmwccpa.com. Go to the uh, resources link. Go to the click on podcasts, and then you'll be able to see all the different podcasts of uh, uh, that we've recorded. 
And if you are looking for a dental-specific CPA anywhere in the United States, again, Southern California is my area. Call me if you're in Southern California, north of San Diego. But um, um, you can uh, go onto our website, which is www.adcpa.org. You will not be sorry. Please promise me you'll work with a dental-specific CPA, uh, as we've talked about on the program before. Dr. Potter, thank you very much for your your time and your expertise. And ladies and gentlemen, that will do it for this episode of The Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman, CPA. Thanks for listening. Please tell all your friends about the podcast, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.